I'm Tom McKinnon. And I'm Beth Bartell. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, February 14th, 2012. Welcome to our Valentine's Day show. Coming up, learn about Boulder's robot scene. So I think robots is actually on the verge to uh, massively revolutionize the agricultural system, and I try to push this with my group. And special for this day of love, we talk with University of Colorado researchers about the neurology of compassion. Someone on the street asks you for money. Do you give or not? What drives that decision? We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Natural gas production has been touted as a cleaner alternative to coal when it comes to climate change. But a new study by scientists at CU Boulder and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, adds more evidence to the contrary. Researchers estimate that natural gas producers in the geologic region called the Denver-Julesburg Basin are losing about 4% of their gas to the atmosphere, and that doesn't include additional leakages in the pipeline and distribution system. The basin underlies the Denver-Aurora metro area, but it extends into Wyoming, Nebraska, and Kansas. That amount is more than double the industry's official inventory, but it also matches estimates made last year by other researchers. Methane is about 25 times stronger than carbon dioxide at trapping heat in the atmosphere, so these levels of emissions could reduce any advantage natural gas would otherwise have over coal. Since 2007, scientists have watched the levels of methane and other greenhouse gases from a 1,000-foot tower in Erie. This tower is one of eight nationwide that NOAA monitors. The scientists, including Gabriel Petrin of NOAA, first wondered if smog from Denver was the culprit, or even feedlots or landfills. But they got similar results when they took air samples on the ground up and down the front range from a mobile lab. The Journal of Geophysical Research will publish this study, which was first reported last week in the journal Nature. MRIs usually assess human health, but scientists are now using the technology to look at the health of batteries. A team of scientists from Cambridge, Stony Brook, and New York universities have come up with a way to measure the functionality and safety of batteries with magnetic resonance imaging, or MRI. MRI technology uses magnetic fields and radio frequency fields to create visualizations, usually of brains, hearts, or other soft tissues inside the human body. In the medical context, metal is a bad thing because the radio frequency fields can't penetrate it. But for analyzing batteries, this limitation actually proved to be an advantage. Radio frequency fields can't go through metal, but they can take very sensitive measurements on its surface. With lithium-ion batteries, for example, an MRI can show the buildup of lithium ions on the battery's electrodes. These images can be used to determine how safe and functional the battery is. Before now, such analysis wasn't possible without opening and destroying the battery. MRIs may also be used to improve on battery technologies to make lighter, safer, more versatile batteries in the future, either by charging the battery's cha- excuse me, by changing the battery's design or using different materials. This method may even be used to develop better fuel cells for storing electrochemical power, such as solar. The research was published in Nature Materials on Sunday. You're listening to How on Earth, KGNU Science Show. I'm Tom McKinnon. 
If you're like most of us here at How on Earth, nothing conjures up images of Valentine's Day like robots. To help get you in the mood, I attended the kickoff meeting of the Boulder is for Robotics meetup held at the Google offices. Let's listen. I'm with Nicholas Correll, uh, an assistant professor of computer science at the University of Colorado. Nicholas is one of the uh, organizers of tonight's uh, Boulder is for Robotics event. Nicholas, uh, what got you interested in this? Well, I do research in robots and I teach robotics and I think really robotics is the next big thing. And so I was thinking, uh, what can we do here in Boulder? And so many things are already happening. So I reached out to the local entrepreneurs, um, Brett Feld, and asked him, what do you think? What can we do? And he said, well, let's get together and create a community because that's really the start uh, of everything. You've described on your website how you think Boulder is in, in an interesting position for robotics. Uh, can you elaborate on that? Well, uh, it's very simple. It starts really with the fact that a lot of robotics uh, materials, um, sensors, and um, manufacturing is here in Colorado and that's really a coincidence when I was at MIT I ordered a lot of things and I didn't even look where that stuff came from but then when I got the job here I realized well everything I ever bought comes from here it's PCBs it's SparkFun Electronics providing all these wonderful kits for people to prototype stuff quickly thing I think especially robotics needs a very close-knit community where you can go over to somebody else's place and say hey how is this working can you help me with that and really touch things and manufacture things and carrying them over back to your place where you put together to, together your robot and I think this is really one of the few spots uh, actually in America where you can do that in this density and so uh, tell us about a little bit about your robotic uh, robotics work at uh, University of Colorado I want to build new generation robots. So one thing I'm building is currently a swarm of robots that are um, little spheres that can roll and you can pour them. And for me, that is a liquid that thinks, and that's really what I want to get at. And so the other thing I'm working on is uh, robotic gardening because I believe um, ro uh, the agricultural system is pretty messed up with monocultures. And uh, I think what you have to do is you have to grow local and polycultures, but who's going to do all the work? So I think robots is actually on the verge to... Uh, massively revolutionized the agricultural system and I try to push this with my group. Nicholas, thank you for being on KGNU. Thank you very much, Tom. I'm now with uh, Adam Wilson. Uh, his company is uh, Orbotics. Uh, Adam, tell us about your product. So our product is Sphero. Sphero is a robot ball that you control with your iOS or Android mobile device. Um, what's kind of interesting about it is it's, yes, it's a simple robot ball that you control, but we've also developed a lot of clever mechanics and software that allow you to pick up Sphero and hold them in your hand and use it as a controller for you know, playing the games on your phone or using Sphero on the ground to build games that are more mixed reality. Like imagine detecting Sphero through the camera of your phone in, in the center of your screen and then you know, having zombies chase towards Sphero and running away from them. So Adam, your company's had a rather meteoric rise uh, recently. Tell us about your origins and how you got to where you are today. We applied for Techstars, the seed incubator here in Boulder, and you know, we got into Techstars, and that was kind of the, the tipping point for us. Um, in Techstars, uh, after the end, they kind of give you a big you know, pitch in front of a lot of a big audience of investors and people that would like to support you. Um, from that, we raised $1.1 million. It started with just Ian and myself building a robot. Up till now, hired 24 people, 25 people on full-time we probably have the same amount of people working in China as we speak in our factory, um, just kind of working to make Spheros to keep up with the, the overwhelming demand that we have for them. 
And where can people go to find out more about your company and your product? So you can go online at gosphero.com um, to learn more about Sphero. You, and here in the next three to six months, you'll probably start seeing them on some of your favorite store shelves. All right. Adam, thank you for being on KGNU. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. All right, I'm with uh, Janet Tsai. Uh, Janet, tell me about your interest in robotics. Um, so I am into engineering education, particularly into getting young women and untraditional populations interested in engineering. I think robotics can be a great way to do that. We see a lot of popular robotic characters already, like WALL-E, that movie was fantastic, and we see the kids like robots. Uh, we just want to need to make that jump from them liking robots to wanting to make robots. So we saw a lot of uh, interesting uh, kind of toy robots at the uh, meeting tonight. Uh, would those be something that might be applicable? Definitely. Um, there's a program or a product that's already out there, Lego Mindstorms. It's a robotics kit, right, that kids make with Legos. And that was actually a joint venture from Tufts and um, some developers way back when, and that's made itself into the curriculum. Now there's all these after-school robotics programs for kids to play with. Um, but I think that some of these exciting new robots shown tonight, they could even take that a step farther, you know? So much easier. Um, the entry level is so much lower, it seems. Kids can get started from any age just playing around and seeing these toys that move around on their own. From that, they can become curious and maybe want to find out what's really going on. And what about girls that are more advanced? Uh, can they pull out the soldering iron and, and hack it themselves? Definitely. I think as soon as they're interested a little bit, we just need to get them chomping at the bit, and then they'll want to know, and then they'll want to get involved on their own. All right, Janet, thank you for being on KGNU. <laughs> Sir, thank you. Now I'm with Carly Glogie. Carly, tell me about your robot. Uh, our robot is Ubali. Uh, it's a plush toy that you put your iPhone or iPod touch in, and it uses uh, voice uh, recognition to listen to a child or someone that just loves toys uh, to learn what you want to do. So it delivers stories, uh, games, and really corny jokes, which kids love. Uh, and we're currently working on uh, some sister apps. So, for example, uh, a Puppet Master app, so the parent can play games like Simon Says or control the toy so a parent can use their other phone or their iPad um, to say hello or ask them what their name is um, or in the case of Simon Says it says you know Simon Says jump and the parent will see if the kid jumped and uh, if they didn't say Simon Says then the little oobly toy will say Simon didn't say you know uh, and we'll be building other apps as well. So I understand you're a startup and uh, you have an interesting way of funding tell us tell, tell us about that. We're going to launch on Kickstarter at the end of the month uh, to take pre-orders. Kickstarter is a website where the community can fund your project. You uh, incentivize them to help out your project by giving them things. So it can start as little as a sticker for $3 or your name mentioned on the company's website to even pre-ordering the toy. And we've seen some really great companies in Colorado get funding that way. And it's just beautiful for groups like us where we're really small and uh, you know, we don't have any like official VC money right now, uh, but to reach out to the community and have them help us. And what do you think about the meeting tonight? Oh, I was amazed at the turnout. We were maybe expecting 20 or 30 people, and to have over 100 was amazing, and I was blown away by a lot of the projects. Carly, thank you for being on KGNU. So now I'm with uh, Alfonso von Wunsheim. Tell us what your interest in robotics is. Well, actually, I don't know much about robotics. But that's what uh, got me interested, because... Uh, we all have been seeing robotics in the 60s in movies, etc., and, and it's been a long way to come, but slowly they're getting you know, more intelligence, more learning ability, more mobility. So some people describe uh, the current state of robotics as uh, to where it was when uh, Wozniak was building the first Apple computer. Would you agree? Well, it sounds tempting at least, and, and for sure 
getting people together is what, what made Silicon Valley a success, is basically having the financiers, uh, the, the engineers, software, hardware all coming together. Alfonso, you describe yourself as a serial entrepreneur. Do you see uh, uh, your next play to be in the robotics area? Well, that's what I'm evaluating right now. I've been lucky uh, in, in the web industry so far, a little bit in the life science, but uh, I'm looking at the next thing, and it would be interesting to see what's the next big thing, and robotics sounds to me that it could be one of those. All right, Alfonso, thank you for being on KGNU. Tom, thanks a lot for the interview. To get more information on or join this group, just Google Boulder is for Robotics. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Beth Bartell. One thing that robots can't do, but humans can, is experience compassion. Here in the studio with us today to celebrate Valentine's Day are two researchers from University of Colorado's Cognitive and Effective Neuroscience Lab, Jessica Andrews-Hanna and Yoni Ashar. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Good to be here. Thank you. Um, let's start by talking about what your lab does. If you could give an overview of the lab, the, the name's kind of a, a mouthful, and you guys go by uh, a shortened version of it. Is that right? Right, we do. Um, the CAN lab, uh, the Cognitive Effective Neuroscience Laboratory. And actually, there are two laboratories involved in our research. Um, the CAN lab studies emotion. It studies how we're able to perceive the emotions of other people and what are the brain systems that support that ability. Um, the other lab, um, Sona Demigian, uh, is a clinical neuro is a clinical psychologist at Boulder, and she studies depression and anxiety, and uses um, really cool mindfulness meditation techniques um, to explore how we can improve depression. And um, your lab in the past did a study on the effects of heartbreak, which is maybe not the best topic for Valentine's Day. So we'll move on to what you guys are doing now. You are uh, working on the effects and triggers of compassion. Could you, um, could you tell us what compassion means in your lab? So maybe we'll take a, a classic example of you're walking down the street and someone asks you for money and 10 different thoughts come to mind. Uh, you know, do you trust them? Are they responsible for their suffering? Are they similar to you? Do you like them? Do you feel tender? Do you feel upset? And all of these thoughts compete for and come down to an actual decision on to how much to donate and whether to donate at all. And that's the framework that we're working with in terms of uh, compassion and compassionate behavior, which are decisions to donate money to other people. And that was the... Um the focus of your, your first study, it's a, a series of study, but you guys started looking at um, charitable donations. Yeah, we ran an online experiment. So this was uh, across the United States, people all over logged on to our website. We had a few hundred people log on, and they read different stories of people who in need, who are helped by a charity. And they answered a slew of questions uh, about how tender they feel, how distressed they feel, and all these different elements that, that go into a, um, you know, a donation decision. And then they had a chance to make a real donation from their own participation earnings. And, and what, what did you find about compassion? Well, we, we found a cool result, which uh, was that all these different things, of course, you know, contribute to, to how compassionate and how tender you feel and how much you donate except for self-similarity, meaning how similar you feel to the, the person you're donating to. 
Uh, so there's, there are many different ways of being similar. You might feel similar to someone in terms of uh, religious identification or ethnicity or gender or socioeconomic status, uh, interests, hobbies, and so forth. And so what we found was that some of the time uh, when you felt more similar to someone, you would also feel more tender toward them or more empathetic toward them. And in those cases, you donated more. But if feeling more similar did not make you feel more empathetic toward them, then that did not affect the donation decision. So in that sense, self-similarity self was not predictive of donation. And, and what was predictive? What people were more likely to give more money? Yeah, so we found some interesting results on terms of uh, character traits and how those predict donation. So uh, there's a personality construct that psychologists like to talk about called agreeableness, which means being sympathetic and cooperative and a pleasant person to be around. And so people who are more agreeable feel more uh, empathetic and donated more. Uh, but on the other hand, people who are more extroverted and outgoing they felt more empathetic, but they did not donate more, which was an interesting result for us. Interesting. And um, I, you told me before that there are different types of empathy. Could you talk about that? Yeah. Um, uh, actually, empathy is a very complex word, and it can um, be thought as sharing the emotions of other people, um, but also understanding why the people are experiencing those emotions in the first place. And so sometimes those types of empathies have been referred to as affective or emotional empathy, um, which is sharing the, the feelings of the people and cognitive empathy, which is sort of perspective taking, putting ourselves in their shoes. And so in our next study, um, we, we sought to disentangle those types of empathy. Um, and, di and did you learn um, that people had different empathetic reactions in this first study that you did? Um, yeah, it, uh, that was, we, we, we had a, a, some results that suggested that there are different, um, different components of empathy. And then in our next study, what we're doing is we're exploring the brain systems that um, support these different types of empathy. And in this, this next study, it's a series of studies, mm -hmm. correct, about, um, about compassion. This next study involves uh, brain scans. So tell us a little bit about how you're using these brain scans in your lab. Right. So um, we're using MRI techniques called functional MRI, which uh, give us the ability to uh, examine what brain regions we're using when we're performing different tasks. Um, and in, in this particular uh, study, we were interested in uh, understanding what brain systems are involved when people make charitable donations. And from prior literature, we uh, we hypothesize that at least three different brain systems are involved. So you'd mentioned empathy. There are actually two different, uh, there are two different brain systems involved in empathy. So affective empathy, which is taking on the feelings of other people. When we see someone who's suffering, we're actually suffering ourselves. When we feel someone who's hurt or in pain, we feel the pain ourselves. Um, that's one brain system. Another one is this perspective-taking brain system, understanding why, um, why they feel the way they do in the first place. We put ourselves in their shoes. So that's another brain system that involves parts of the medial prefrontal cortex. And then finally, there is a third brain system 
Um, that's often referred to as the valuation or the reward system. And uh, this system includes regions, uh, subcortical regions like the nucleus accumbens, the striatum, and um, cortical regions like the medial prefrontal cortex. And that um, that is that is active when um, people receive um, primary and secondary rewards when they're receiving money. And so it's interesting in our study, um, we're going to uh, look at whether whether um, donating to other people actually activates these same regions. Do we activate the same reward systems in our in ourselves when we make donations to other people? How does that look in a brain scan? Um, it it looks well. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen a, a picture of an MRI with red blobs on it. That that's what an fMRI scan is. Um, and in a brain scan, uh, where people are are making rewards, um, are donating rewards to other people, um, we would likely see uh, big blobs in different regions of the brain. We have just a couple minutes left to talk about this study. Do you have any preliminary findings on uh, on the current study? Um, well, we only collected about 10 participants so far, and it's a very complex um, sort of longitudinal study with a bunch of interventions. Um, so so I, we have to collect more data. <laughs> and you're using meditation in this study. Could you tell us about how, how meditation relates to compassion? Yeah, it's this really cool meditation technique called uh, loving-kindness meditation or compassion meditation or, or meta sometimes. Uh, which is, is different from mindfulness meditation, which is what many people are familiar with. Uh, this kind of meditation is really about uh, trying to feel connected to other people and, and feel warmth and love for them, and almost viscerally to generate these emotions of, of love and kindness for other people. And that our, our, hypothesis, our, our hypothesis is that this kind of meditation will cultivate compassion and that will increase compassionate behavior, and we'll see that both in terms of charitable donations and on the brain scans, as Jess was talking about. Well, thank you so much, Jessica Andrews-Hanna and Yoni Ashar, for joining us from CU's CanLab. Uh, we look forward to hearing the full results of your current study, and uh, hopefully everybody will be thinking about compassion today on Valentine's Day. You are listening to How on Earth, the KG News Science Show. I'm Beth Bartell, and before we sign off today, we want to wish Tom McKinnon, co-host of today's show, a very warm farewell and good luck. He is heading off to China for a four-month adventure on a tech startup accelerator. Tom, we hope you come back with lots of stories to share with us here on How on Earth. Thanks, Beth. It will be an adventure for sure. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Shelley Schlender. This week's show is produced by Beth Bartell and was engineered by Shelley Schlender and Jim Pullen. Additional contributions by Brianna Draxler and Susan Moran. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from the Pat Metheny Group. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes. 
questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bartell. And I'm Tom McKinnon.